Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books. I do think diversity is a strength. And I think if you have people from all different backgrounds and all different life experiences and genders, you will make better decisions to surround yourself and be an active listener. And so I've always tried to ensure that not only did I set a broad table, but that I invited people in and tried to make them feel comfortable. And the more senior you got in organizations, the more you have to work to make people feel comfortable. Because they begin to think you have all the answers and, and you don't or they think that they're not as smart as you, and they are. And so I learned part of leadership is empowering others by giving space for their voices and giving validation to their ideas and encouraging them to push back and tell me what they really think. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's conversation, I am delighted, delighted to speak with Valerie Jarrett. I'm going to read a brief paragraph of her bio. The Honorable Valerie Jarrett is Chief Executive Officer, that's CEO audience, and a member of the Board of Directors of the Barack Obama Foundation, that's the President Barack Obama. She's also a Senior Distinguished Fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. This was published in April 2019. So Valerie joins me in conversation. We talk about her book. We talk about her current role as CEO. We talk about leadership, we talk about navigating life, we talk about vulnerability, and well, let's get to the conversation. Valerie, thank you so much for joining me on the Visible Voices podcast. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. You are the chief executive officer and a member of the board of directors of the Barack Obama Foundation. Can you tell the listeners more about the Obama Presidential Center and how will it contribute to the legacy of the Obamas? So the Obama Presidential Center is going to be located on the south side of Chicago. We are two years into a four-year construction, and you can already see it rising up out of the ground. It's 19.3 acres. It will be a museum that describes uh, both President and Michelle Obama's history, the people upon whose shoulders they stand, and their eight years in Washington in the White House. We'll have a Chicago Public Library. We'll have an athletic center, a forum building, music studios, sports activities outside on the playing field, vegetable gardens, walking trails, immediately adjacent to Lake Michigan and the Museum of Science and Industry and the University of Chicago. And maybe most importantly to me, about two miles from where I grew up. And so it will be a economic engine for Chicago and it will be a beacon of hope for the world. And I cannot wait for it to open, but we've already begun our programming. So we're not going to have that wait until the center actually opens. Yeah. Speaking of programming, the Obama Foundation recently announced, well, actually not so recent anymore, in July of this year, it announced its inaugural class of USA leaders. And I'm wondering if you can tell the listeners a little bit about the program and how the foundation is going to really support these leaders to realize their goals. So our mission is to inspire, empower, and connect the next generation of leaders so that they can change their worlds. And so our program that you mentioned in the United States has 100 leaders who were selected from all across the country 
I would mention we also have programs in Asia and Africa and in Europe at the University of Chicago and at Columbia University. And we also have a scholarship program for juniors and seniors in college. And these leadership programs are all designed to give young people the tools that they need to go forth and change the world. We don't tell them how to think or what issues to care about, but we do give them this important toolkit that enables them to be more impactful, to take what they're doing to scale and to connect them with one another, knowing that over the course of life, they'll be able to help one another and, and even broaden the impact that they have. And so we have a robust alumni association of people who have been through our leadership programs. We also have a program designed to keep adolescent girls in school that's global, our Girls Opportunity Alliance, and My Brother's Keeper to help the trajectory of the lives of boys and young men of color. Can you give an example of a leader, of someone who's going through the program, and an example of a project or their goal? Well, I'll tell you a story about a young woman who's in both our European leaders class and also at Columbia. And she was very interested in ending sexual assault uh, in her country. And she was from Slovenia. And she was a very young activist, and she got a ballot measure going to try to combat sexual violence against women, and it failed miserably. And she went through our program, and she learned about grassroots organizing, getting outside of the big city where she lived and going into the, some of the smaller parts of the country, where she could hear directly from women and hear their stories, but maybe through a different lens. And it helped her craft her message better. And as she was out and about, she also said, now it's really important that you vote and not just vote about this ballot measure, but vote in the election because it matters who's running our country. Well, within one cycle, she moved the voter registration from about 50% to 72% and of course got her ballot measure passed. And so it just shows that she had the right idea. She had a passionate and important cause. She didn't have the tools that were necessary to actually lead and get something impactful done. And there are examples of that really throughout the continents where we're working, where smart, energetic, well-intentioned people just don't know how to take it to scale. And that's what we try to help them do. It's great. It's that access to resources. You know, people can have ideas or people can go out and do, but if you don't set them up with success, with the how-to, with the people with the other learning, education, et cetera, network, things don't go as far as they could. And I will tell you, in this climate where so much is polarized, I think it's more important than ever that we teach people resilience, compassion, inclusion, figuring out ways of building on character and integrity and trust. And I learned when I was many, many moons ago working for the city of Chicago, that just because you show up and you say, I'm here from the government, I want to help you. That doesn't mean that people are going to automatically trust you. And in fact, if you use those words, sometimes they won't trust you. And you learn that you have to show up and you have to under-promise and over-deliver over and over and over again. And it's a relationship that you build with a community that you're trying to serve. And as in all relationships, it takes time. Yeah. Kindness, respect. And you know, in your book, you talk about showing up early and that's a sign of respect mm-hmm. for people. My dad taught me that. If you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. So let's move on to your book. Now, this book came out in 2019. And for listeners that haven't read it yet, it's entitled Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. So now they're like, oh, I wonder if they spoke to Risa 
ahead of time when they named the book about finding my voice, and this happens to be the Visible Voices podcast. Well, we know that's not the case. And also, I thought, perfect, we must talk about finding one's voice. So before we talk about your voice, I'd like to say, how are you different? How are you different having written this book? It's a really good question, Risa, and I'll tell you why. Because I spent my entire life looking forward. I've worked since I was 16 in some capacity or another, never been without a job. I've never been without a sense of forward momentum. Even when I didn't exactly know why I was going in the direction I was going, I was moving forward in that direction. And when I left the White House, it was the first time that I didn't have a job, and I didn't really want a job. I was exhausted. I felt like I'd had the best job in the world. And it gave me a moment to catch my breath and actually look back. And as you decide whether or not you're going to tell your story, one of the things you do, or at least I did, was gut check my family and say, look, if I'm going to tell the story, I got to tell the whole story. I can't sugarcoat it. I can't gloss over the parts that make me uncomfortable or that were painful because then people won't know me. And if they don't know me, then how are they going to trust me? And I have a lot to say, so I want to build trust in my book. And so by looking backwards, it was really a time of reflection and appreciation for how the many pieces of my puzzle fit together or the many chapters of my book I like to say fit to a whole book. And I'd never done that before. And so it was painful to write and hard. And I think particularly because I was so tired and everything that had happened in those eight years was so new and fresh that it was much easier for me to write about my childhood and my young adulthood than it was to write about those eight years. But It made sense when I really looked at it in those multiple chapters as a whole. And I had just never done that before. The vulnerability you demonstrated in the writing, specifically regarding some of your personal relationships, your romantic relationships, to your point, it's authentic. It comes across to the reader as authentic, but it builds that trust of like, wow, she's really exposing and she's going to just say it the way it is and how she came to where she is now. Well, look, I think a lot of people might see me today and say, oh my goodness. Well, they read into all kinds of stories about how you got to where you are. They think it was easy. They think it was without stumbles and falls. They think that it looks like a pretty good life and it is a good life. But part of why it's so good is because I did have pain in my life. It gave me empathy. I did marry somebody that turned out to not be the right fit and had to go through that sense of feeling like I was a failure and rediscover like who I was, or maybe discover who I was for the first time when I realized I better take care of my daughter and take care of myself because I, I have no choice in the matter. And so that learning process for me was really important. And I wanted to share that. I think particularly with women for a whole host of reasons, I think that oftentimes women don't take care of themselves first or they're trying to live out somebody else's vision of what their life should be. Or as my mother said to me, why are you trying so hard to be perfect? You're actually not perfect and that's okay. You set yourself up to disappoint yourself when you think that you're this perfect soul. And so I thought I should show my imperfections and be really honest and candid about hopefully how I learned along the way. Yeah. A Valerie Jarrett quote from the book, courage isn't the absence of fear, courage is overcoming fear. Everybody's afraid. And some people pretend better than others, particularly men. But I think courage is where you look at, you know, you face it head on 
and you assess the risks and you decide to move forward anyway. And, and even if you don't achieve what you were trying to achieve, even if you do stumble and fall flat on your face, what you learn is you are resilient and you pick yourself back up and you get back in the game and you realize not to, don't take yourself quite so seriously. You can take issues seriously and your mission seriously, but be able to laugh at yourself and realize, come back and fight another day. Focusing on voice, you wrote, part of finding our voice is learning not to worry so much about how we appear. Instead, it's about being comfortable in showing who we are. And I think you really did this in this book. And I shared that I read it about a year ago and I reread it in anticipation of our conversation. And what struck me is, I'm wondering your read on this, this is not just your voice. You're actually perhaps giving a bit of an amuse-bouche an appetizer of the voice of the Obamas and of the Obama Foundation, maybe leading up to what was coming in your next position? Yes. Well, I do think, as I mentioned a bit ago, that the chapters of my life make sense now. Now, if you were to have said to me 30 years ago, would I be where I am today? I would have said no. And I obviously took a very circuitous route to get here. But each one made sense and built on the other. And I've now known the Obamas 32 years and met them before they were married and before he even got into politics. And the foundation of that friendship is what I think really allowed me to serve in his administration in the capacity that I did, and certainly now to run the foundation, because I can channel the both of them because I know them really well. And I'm not saying that we always agree on every single thing, but I do know how they think and I know how they feel. I know what their values are. I know what their priorities are. And it is an enormous compliment that they've given me the opportunity to steward this incredible institution for them. And I think my experiences in local government helped me be far more effective when I was in the White House. My experience running a company allowed me to be more effective when I was both in government and then came back out of government and now running a not-for-profit. I worked with not-for-profits at all levels of government and in the private sector. And so I think when you take this look backwards and you realize if you keep an open mind and you're curious and you're always interested in learning and you build relationships, then it all makes sense in the end. And the question isn't like, did I have it all? Did I have it all at the same time? I, I think we ask ourselves the wrong questions. I think the question is, do the multiple chapters add up to a whole? You know, were you loved? Did you learn how to love other people? Did you feel like you led a purposeful life? Did you use your voice not just to serve yourself, but to be a force for good for others? And I think that's part of what I learned along my journey. And if I hadn't had this leap of faith to take these plunges in different directions, then it certainly wouldn't have been as rich of a life as it has been. I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. Your legacy, it's being built. It has been built. It's building. While at the White House, you were known to be an empowering force for marginalized voices. And you, know, you referenced a little bit of this with talking about women 
sexual assault. What lessons did you learn about the importance of representation in the workforce, knowing full well that sometimes you were that representation, but also broad definition of representation? First of all, it's hard to be what you can't see. And so I think that being a role model and comporting yourself as a role model, so people will hopefully look up to you, was something that I had in my life through my parents, who I looked up to and wanted to be that for other people. But I think representation is also making room at the table. You know, Shirley Chisholm said, if there's not a chair, bring a folding chair. Well, sometimes you have the ability to open up a chair and make somebody feel like they belong at the table. And because early in my career, I didn't feel like I belonged at the table. I didn't feel like I had anything in common with the people with whom I worked. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anybody looking out for me. That when I was in a position to do that for other people, I felt this enormous desire to do so. And have prided myself on always looking for the people who weren't represented. And part of why I do it is I wish someone had done it for me, but also I do think diversity is a strength. And I think if you have people from all different backgrounds and all different life experiences and genders, you will make better decisions to surround yourself and be an active listener. And so I've always tried to ensure that not only did I set a broad table, but that I invited people in and tried to make them feel comfortable. And the more senior you got, in organizations, the more you have to work to make people feel comfortable because they begin to think you have all the answers and, and you don't, or they think that they're not as smart as you and they are. And so I learned part of leadership is empowering others by giving space for their voices and giving validation to their ideas and encouraging them to push back and tell me what they really think. Leaders often say that it's lonely when you're at the top because of that respect, that sort of, can I really push back against? You and I are on the same page regarding open table, seats at the table, and embracing diverse perspectives because, in fact, the literature shows, or as I like to say, the literature shows, that better return on investment, better employee retention, better morale. And, you know, for people that aren't even interested in the diversity in the room, it's a better bottom line. Companies do better. That's what the evidence shows. And so I make the case that diversity is a strength, not because it's a nice thing to do or the right thing to do, although it is both, but because it gives you a competitive advantage. What keeps you up at night? Well, right now, the state of the world and the things I can't control. (laughs) And so that's why I love my job, because it gives me the ability to be a part of the light and not the darkness. But I am worried that our country and the world is becoming increasingly polarized, increasingly unforgiving and exacting. I think it's harder to listen and I worry about the younger generation, their ability to have the tools that they need to disagree without being disagreeable, to listen to the other side, to have the empathy, to put themselves into someone else's shoes, because it's so easy to just stay in your own little echo chamber and, you know, talk at each other through social media, as opposed to listening to each other through actually looking into somebody's eyes. And my younger cousins, when they first told me about ghosting somebody. And I was like, what in the world is that? It's like, why break up with somebody? You just stop communicating with them. And I thought, well, that's cruel. And it also, you should have to look into the faces of the people that you're causing pain because one day somebody is going to cause you pain. And so I worry about all of that particularly. And so part of why I'm spending this chapter of my life with young people 
is, is it, there are so many out there who really do want to give back and make their country, their world better and to give them the tools that they need that they might not have gotten along the way because it's harder today. That's probably what keeps me up, but also gives me this feeling of hope. How do you think we can help young people become more civically engaged? Well, I always say start local. And maybe that's because I started in local government, but you know your community better than you know anything else. And if you want to get engaged, start there where you know, you know the lay of the land, you know what needs to be done, you've lived the experience. And if you start small and you have a little success, then you might stick your toe in a little further. So, you know, go to a community meeting, go to a budget hearing in your city, certainly vote. And I think that it's contagious. The more you do, the more you want to do. At least that's been my experience in life. But it can also be a little intimidating. And with all of this noise, it can be a little scary. But there's something everybody can do. And ordinary people do extraordinary things. They just don't think that they can. And I have met these ordinary people and seen what they've done. I mean, I'll tell you a quick story. I met somebody on my book tour who looks in the newspaper and finds out where naturalization ceremonies are going to happen. And she gets on the bus with her ironing board and she goes to the naturalization ceremony. She sets up her ironing board. And when people come out, she registers them to vote. Who wants to vote more than somebody who just became a U.S. citizen? And you don't need a table. You just need an ironing board. And so I tell the story to say everybody can do something. And she said, I can't even count how many people I've registered to vote. And this is, this is what I do. And so everybody can just figure out, you know, do I go down and volunteer at the local school and teach kids to read, volunteer to tutor after school? Do I mentor somebody in a summer job? I mean, there's just something everyone can do. And I think my experience is you get so much more than you give if you believe in service. You just said, you know, the more you do, the more you want to do. To what do you attribute your, as you age, continuing to do, continuing to have roles and your health? Well, I attribute that to my parents who, as I mentioned earlier, were incredible role models. My mother's 95. I thought she was going to retire, but she still hasn't quite retired. She teaches a graduate school in early childhood development. And she's still going strong. And my father, same thing until he died. He was always actively engaged and interested in learning and curious. And so having had these two incredible role models, I think I'll probably work forever. And what I do do, and I encourage this to everybody, is you you do have to take care of yourself and pace yourself. This is not a sprint life. It's a marathon. And you do need to surround yourself with people who not just love you, but love you in a healthy way, who are rooting for you and who will tell you when you mess up and, you know, check you. And I, when I was in the White House, as you were saying earlier, the, most people won't check you. And I have a good circle of girlfriends who I would have brunch with every Sunday and they checked me all the time. They were proud of me, but it didn't affect our relationship. And so that helps with the loneliness we also talked about a minute ago. So you do have to figure out what replenishes you. I do not believe in work-life balance. I think that's another kind of slogan that sets us up to be disappointed. We spend far more hours at work than we do with the rest of our life. That's just the way it is. So the question is, what are you doing to replenish yourself so that you can live to fight another day? And whether it's exercise or eating healthy or surrounding yourself with loved ones, everyone has to figure out how to replenish and to take the long view and realize, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Just 
try to do good every day and then do a little bit more good, <laughs> a little bit more good. And then you look back and it's like, oh, that was really good. <laughs> you said that you've had many jobs since age 16. Are there any jobs that listeners would be surprised to know that you worked, did, loved, hated, any comers? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. My first two jobs when I was 16, I was a clinic coordinator at the University of Chicago Medical Center. And I was a docent at the Museum of Science and Industry. And I went on to become the chairman of the board of the University of Chicago Medical Center and served on the board of trustees of the Museum of Science and Industry. And I used to often say in those boardrooms that my experience is kind of the low person on the totem pole taught me so much about the institutions. And I always wanted to listen to people who weren't just the senior people working at those institutions, but the people who actually interfaced with the public and realize that those are our ambassadors and we had to invest in them. So those two jobs were eye openers for me. But all through college, I was always signing up for whatever I could to get that pocket money that everybody in college needs to have a little bit to buy my pizza. I think we went to like Jack in the Box. And so that was what I was looking for my money for back then. But in my book, I talk about, you know, going from practicing law on the outside to practicing law for the city, to going to a real estate firm, to going to the federal government, to, to wandering in the wilderness, to writing a book, and now running this incredible institution. And so I've had these multiple chapters, and it's been a circuitous route. And all along the way, I remember most the people who I've had the privilege of working with. People often say to me, do you miss the White House? And I don't. There are some times where I miss sitting on that Truman balcony, looking out at the South Lawn and the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial. But really, it's the people that I miss. And that's the elixir of life. What did you learn at the Chicago Transit Authority? Ooh, how to get yelled at. <laughs> I was once at a public meeting that was so bad that the police showed up in SWAT uniforms. And people were screaming so loudly that the person next to me, I literally couldn't hear what he was saying. And I remember it so vividly because we were trying to balance our budget and we were looking at, should we raise fares? Should we cut service? We couldn't get money from the federal government anymore. It was at a really challenging time for governments and it trickled on down to the CTA. And I had to make some really tough decisions. And it was, it was painful because when you cut service, you know you're going to affect somebody who's relying on it. And usually the people who relied most on the CTA were the people who had no other mode of transportation. And I remember there was a demonstration in front of my home and my daughter, who was about 11 at the time, said, why do you do this? Like, That's so embarrassing. And I said, I'd rather be the one making those tough calls because I know I'm going to do it in a way that's as compassionate and empathetic and fair and equitable as possible but I am going to have to make some tough decisions. And so we did. And I still remember one person in particular who told me a really painful story about what cutting her bus route was going to do to her. And all I can remember thinking at the time was if we don't cut this route, it's going to impact so many more people. And those are the tough decisions that you have to make in public service. Part of my question comes from the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority, the Philadelphia, essentially, Subway. The CEO came on the program and we were talking and it really opened my eyes to the extent to which transportation, public transportation is part of public health and part of preventive public health. You see houseless people, you see people with opioid addiction, and it's sort of part of the health of the city and the community and the population. Uh, the extent to which the transportation system is 
encompassing, comprehensive, functional, et cetera. Exactly. That's exactly right. So Valerie, listeners are going to want to know how they can learn more about you and about the Obama Presidential Center. Where can you send them? Well, you could go to Obama.org. That's our website for the foundation. You can learn all about the important work that our foundation is doing and how you can get involved. And you'll learn a little bit about me on the site as well. And of course, you could always just Google me. Don't believe everything you read. Promise me that. But also, most importantly, read my book. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Valerie Jarrett for joining me in conversation. I loved it. Thank you for bringing your time, your energy, your heart, your brain, all of it. Hat tip to Alicia Mall and Selwyn Rogers for connecting me with Valerie. Okay, audience, three take-homes from this conversation. Number one, be authentic, be yourself, use your voice. Number two, leadership and chapters. We don't really always know where we're going, but please know that if you listen to your gut, listen to the path you see before you, follow that path, then somehow all these chapters will add up to a book. Finally, civic engagement democracy, and our country. Many leaders with whom I've spoken are worried about this. I encourage all of you to register to vote, then go out and vote. Engage in civic duties, use your voice, speak up, create safe, equitable, and dignified spaces for everybody, and take great care of yourself. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DeCorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.